0: All right, guys. So this is an exciting Sunday for our church. I remember four years ago in coming here to plant this church, one of the things that we were praying for really early on as a church family is that God, in his grace, in our ministry, would raise up next-generation leaders and Bible teachers. And I'm really thankful that Colin Provart is an answer to that prayer. Some of you guys know Colin. And... uh Everyone in our college ministry called Salt Company loves Colin. Colin's a gifted Bible teacher, and he's taught maybe 12 times, something like that total, in our college ministry called Salt Company. And he's done such a good job that I asked him uh, to jump up and, you know, go to the big leagues and teach at Salt City this week. And uh, so that's super exciting. And, and just, to, just to add, like, one more thing to, you know, his mental picture as he's going to do this Corin, our lighting guy, has asked him to stand on this side of the stage because that light was knocked down. So just so you know, I want to set Colin up for success. He knows that he's supposed to stand here, okay? He knows that he's not, you know, you might think, okay, what's this guy doing? He doesn't know he's supposed to stand in the middle of the stage. No, he does. So I'm going to pray for Colin, and then Colin's going to teach the Bible, all right? Uh, Jesus, I thank you so much for Colin. He, is an answer to prayer and a a faithful uh, young man, and I'm asking that you would fill him with your spirit to teach us your word. God, thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, that your power is made perfect in our weakness, and therefore Colin and I both boast in our weakness so that the power of Christ would rest on us, and ask that You'd calm his nerves and uh, give him clarity of thought and clarity of speech, and that we would all humble ourselves under your mighty hand through your word, and that we would all learn something and be changed by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Well, good morning, Salt City. As Drew said, my name's Colin. I'm also really thankful for that intro, a little light lighten the room a little bit, and I'm, I'm a little bit nervous of tripping on these chords because I sometimes move when I teach. Uh, so if I do, just laugh and we can all laugh together. Um, but we're going to be continuing through Philippians. So if you have a Bible, turn there. We're going to be in the last four verses of Philippians 1. So starting in verse 27. And even though we only have four verses this morning, there, I think there's a lot that Paul wants us to unpack. There are some rich uh, theological questions for us and a strong call for us as a church this morning. And so, let's read Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul opens the text right away with the theme of this morning, and that's only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And and so the question we have this morning is how do we live, how do you live a life worthy of? of the gospel. And and before we answer that question, I I have to say what I'm I'm not saying, what I'm not asking you to think, and that is to think that we can somehow be deserving of the gospel. When, When we hear that language, live a life worthy of the gospel, I'm not asking you to live a life deserving of the gospel because the gospel in its nature is not something that we deserve, but something that has been freely given to us. So what does Paul mean when he says, "Live a life worthy of the gospel?" he's saying, "Live a life in accordance with the gospel." How the Greek translates is, "Live as a citizen." Like, live as a right citizen of the citizenship that you've been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ." And so that's the question we have, is how do we live as citizens? How do we live worthy of the gospel? And I think that's a really important question that we have to ask ourselves because we often ask ourselves, what does the gospel do for me? And that's a beautiful question that has beautifully profound answers, but my fear is that we may not ask ourselves very often, what does the gospel ask of me? What does the gospel ask of me? And if the gospel has these profound implications for our lives, then our lives must be a reflection of the good news that we've received and the good news that we have believed. And so this morning, we're going to look at three ways that we live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Three ways that we live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so the first one is unity amongst believers, Unity amongst believers. Let's go go back and look at verse 27 one more time. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or i am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the first implication of living a life worthy of the gospel is that there's unity amongst believers. And and we can know that the gospel is actually the only thing that can create that unity. It's a primary implication of the gospel, but it's also the, the only way to true unity is through the gospel. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that it's an imperative of belief. It's necessary for those who have been reconciled with God to also be in community and unity with one another. And when Paul says unity amongst believers, I think he is saying the global church. All believers in all places. But I think he's specifically writing to one church. And so I specifically want to encourage Salt City Church that we need to be a unified church. And see it as as of primary importance. And and I think there's a reason that Paul, I want to prove to you how important Paul thinks this is. Like there's a reason he writes it first. So in the the book of Ephesians, you guys don't have to turn there, but it's another letter that Paul writes to another church that that has different circumstances. And this is what he writes. This is Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, so pretty similar language. He's giving the same encouragement to this church. This is verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So Paul writes two letters to two churches, and he says, walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of the gospel. Here's how to do that. Be unified as a church. Be unified as a church. That, that Paul knows the weightiness and the implications of unity amongst believers. And that's why he says it in two letters. I really think Paul believes this. And I, I really believe this. He believes that disunity will erode a church's gospel witness. But unity will explode a church's gospel witness. It's that important And and even as I say that, there there aren't that many people in the room right now that are like, man, I want to be a part of a disunified church. Like, I I want my life to just be chaos. I want no one to to agree with me. I want it to be, like, really hard to show up, right? Everyone wants unity, both in the church and in culture. It's kind of become, like, one of those hot-button words where we want unity. We're fighting for unity, but from my experience, we like to talk about unity more than we like to fight for it. And we like to talk about others' disunity more than we like to really understand what it takes to be a unified body. And we, as we talk about unity and, and we think about the church, we know that the church should look different from culture, but culture's also talking about unity. So how do we distinguish between the two? Because what culture's saying is like, I'm going to do me and and if you accept who I am and I I accept who you are, we can be unified. But here's what's funny about that, is their pursuit of unity is through the pursuit of individualism. We're all going to be our own individual people and somehow we can create unity, but the rise of individualism has brought about some of the greatest disunity we've ever seen. Like, our world is incredibly disunified and the world can't even agree on the brokenness and the disunity that we see. So we know that the church should look different. But even speaking for just myself, I can see how I've been influenced by the individualism of our culture. So we have to ask ourselves, how has the individualism of our culture impacted the way that I view and the way that we practice unity as a church. And I see two primary ways that individualism has impacted the church. One, we're more excited about rallying around secondary or political issues than we are rallying around the truth of the gospel. Like we, get, we get more excited, like, hey, this person agrees with me on some secondary or, or political issue, rather than, hey, this person is a brother or sister in Christ. Or a second one, we agree theologically, like, we're all for the same primary issues, we love the Bible, we agree on what the Bible says, don't know what that was, <laughs> warned you all, um, so, sorry, Nate, um. So we, we agree theologically. We agree on what the Bible says, but we like, don't want to be soul-level unified. Like, we don't want to do life together. We don't want to be known by each other. And I think these are both ways the church has been influenced by the individualism of our culture. I want to live in my sphere or live with only other people that agree with the things that I want to agree with. Both these are examples of superficial unity, and this isn't what Paul's talking about. But for us in Christ, we actually have the opportunity to be unified. This is an invitation that we have as a community, and it's an invitation that the church must accept. It's this beautiful invitation. It's something that we have been invited into because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so how do we do this? Paul actually tells us. This is how we fight for unity. He says, in one spirit. So here's what we do as believers. We trust that the spirit of God is in all believers and that spirit is the same. Like this needs to be a place of trust where we assume the best in each other because we have the spirit of God, the same spirit of God. The, that spirit has the same character in all those who believe. Something we say as a staff team a lot is trust is given, mistrust is earned. Man, what, what if that was true of Salt City Church? Like of the, of the believers in Salt City Church? My default is to trust you and assume beautiful motives because we have the spirit of God. We, we trust that the spirit is working in that person And instead of looking at the ways that maybe the Spirit hasn't completely worked through some sin issues, we look at ways that the Spirit has done beautiful things in that person's life, and we celebrate that together. So when we have the same Spirit, which all believers do, we actually have our desires completely changed, and our desires begin to look a lot like the other believers' desires. So that's what Paul then says, he says, with one mind. And when he says one mind, how, how, what he's actually trying to say is we have like the same soul, the same life-giving spirit. So for all believers in the room, the same thing energizes us. And that is to see Christ proclaimed and disciples made to the ends of the earth. Like if you're a believer in the room, that should get, get you energized, because that's, that's that spirit desire in you. That's what that's doing. It's creating the same desire for all believers in the room. Our ambition is the same. Let's see Christ be at the center of the stage. And we have this same ambition. When we have the same spirit that leads to the same ambition, we as a church can run hard together after the same goal. And that's what Paul says next. He says, striving side by side for the faith. Salt City, would we run hard together to believe in the good news of Jesus and the implications of that? Would that that mean that we share life together? That we we would bear each other's burdens, we'd pick each other up when we fall, that we'd encourage when, when things are going well, that we're for each other, we want to see the others in the room finish well. We want to see the people to our right and to our left finish the race well. And the primary way that we do this at Salt City is through connection groups. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about that again in, in just a bit, but, but know that we want this to be true of all believers in Salt City. So here's what I want you guys to know is that this unity that I just talked about, this unity is possible because the unity has been won for us. It's not something that we need to manufacture. It's something that the Spirit has given to us through the good news of the gospel. The payment for this unity has been made. And now it's an invitation in front of us that all we have to do is accept. So I was um, reminded of, of this idea um, Something you guys need to know about me is I love the Olympics. And so this time of year, I thought it was going to be a year ago, but 2021, you know, 2020 was weird. Uh, gets me really excited. I've even been watching some of the Olympic trials, some track. I'm getting pumped about uh, people that are going to the Olympics because they just get, right? It's just one of those things. I love it. I'm a big sports guy, but I will watch any sport if it's in the Olympics. Like ping pong, come on, I'm watching it. Like badminton, you name it. I will watch whatever because I just love the Olympics. There's something about the Olympics that gets me fired up. One of, one of those, the reasons for that might be because uh, growing up, my dad had this really, uh, really sweet job where he worked with a company that worked with the Olympics. And so nine years ago, I remember my, my dad sat our family down, and, um, and he said, hey, hey, family, here's, here's the plane tickets. And Here's the booked hotel room, and here are the event tickets. Here's this invitation to come with me to the Olympics. All you got to do is say yes. It's like, do I get out of school? Yes. I'm in, right? Like, I, like I'm pumped about it. I'm kidding. It was over the summer, so. Um, but, but, like, I, I was pumped, right? It, it, it had been paid for. The invitation was on the table. All I had to do was say yes, and of course I was going to say yes. There was a joy that was going to come by accepting that invitation. Christian, that is the invitation that we have been given. We've been invited into a life of unity by trusting the Spirit of God. It has been paid for on our behalf. All we have to do is say yes and walk into that. It has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. Let's accept the invitation to live a life unified as a church. And so what what does that mean? What what does that mean for this place right now? Is that we rally around the same thing. We rally around Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised and ascended and sitting at the right hand of God. Like let's keep the main thing the main thing. The, The good news that Drew talked about in announcements. Let's keep that central in this place. And so we want to make it as easy as possible for you to apply this. And so if you're not in a connection group, if you don't know what connection groups are, they're small groups that meet throughout the week. It's the primary way that we live out unity as a church. If you're not in a connection group, jump in one. This is how we live this out. This is how we share life together. So how, how do you do that? So summer is a really weird time here at Salt City. Uh, but in August, we're going to have these connect point classes that will tell you more about connection groups, more about how to get plugged in. So if you're not in a connection group, man, jump in on that class. Jump in on that class and we'll help you get plugged into a connection group. If you are in a connection group, see it for what it is. Like go to that place looking to serve and love those who are in your connection group, not looking to be served and be loved. Let's fight for the souls of the people in our group. Not not just be friends one night a week, but fight together for the souls so that those in your group would finish well. Imagine. Imagine if we were a unified church. Like if, if the, this beautiful explanation of unity was lived out, something that we accepted the invitation into, man, I think we would be an unstoppable force against darkness. I mean, would be an unstoppable force against the darkness of this world. And this is actually the next thing that Paul says. So look again at verse 28. He says, Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. So the second way we walk worthy of the gospel is that we would be fearless towards Opposition. Paul wants believers to be fearless towards the opposition in their lives, specifically the, the gospel opposition that they see. And, and for some of you, like, I don't need to explain or unpack what it means to have gospel opposition in your life. Because you know deeply what it's like to have people who push strongly against the gospel in your life. Maybe it's a coworker, or maybe it's all your coworkers. Like, if my co-workers knew I was a Christian, they'd say this, they'd believe that. Maybe it's a close friend that you've known for a long time. Maybe it's a family member. And, and that's really hard, that, you, that there's someone in your life that, that pushes so hard against the gospel. Here's what I want you to know, is, is keep fighting. This can be a really hard truth, and so lean into community, and if you know that person, lean in, pray for them, encourage them, ask them how they're doing, because that can be really hard, and and this text can be hard on that. It can be hard to believe. So for some of you, names came to mind, but for others, maybe there wasn't a name that popped into mind, but we all experience opposition to the gospel moving forward, and so So what do I mean? Like, how can we all experience gospel opposition? Here's what I think Paul means, is again in in Ephesians, Ephesians 6, Paul is talking about opposition or enemies, and this is what he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, there, there are opponents that we all face, to gospel movement. We all face gospel opposition. It's a, it's a spiritual battle. Like more than it is a, a battle in the flesh, it is a spiritual battle. But Paul says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. But man, feel, fear feels like such a natural human emotion. But it's hard to imagine a life without fear. Because But Paul's saying be fearless. And I'm not just talking about common phobias. I'm talking about like these deep-rooted fears of what's going to happen to me if I share the gospel. Am I going to fail? Am I not going to present it good enough? Are are people going to think poorly of me? Am I never going to like gain the approval that I need? Paul's saying the right response to the gospel, to walking worthy of the gospel, is that you would be fearless towards opposition, both opposition in the flesh and opposition in cosmic powers. And part of unity is understanding that we all have these opponents that we face. We can all be unified in that together and understand that we need to fight together. It feels like Paul is crazy. Because again, fear just feels so natural and normal. But here's what I want you to know is that fear is the only tactic the enemy has. And I know it can feel like they have more power, that there's real like, gospel opposition in your life. But if we believe in the sovereignty and the power and the control of God, then fear is the only thing that is standing in our way. Because God is ultimately in control. Like, let me remind you of what the gospel says. It is absolutely that God has redeemed individual sinners from their sin and rescued them so that they could know and believe and be in relationship with him by paying the penalty on the cross and raising from the tomb and ascending into heaven. But here's here's the rest of the gospel message. Here's what you also need to know is that Jesus is going to come back. And he's ultimately going to eradicate all sin and all darkness and all evil from this world and have this cosmic redemption that brings about ultimate victory. Man, if we believe in the end of the story, if we believe that that is true, then it makes the presence of gospel opposition powerless. Because belief in the end and fear don't go together. For what can evil do to the Christian that has not already been conquered on the cross or will one day be conquered at the return of Jesus? The answer is nothing. There's nothing that hasn't been conquered on the cross or will one day be conquered at the return of Jesus. So belief in the end of the story drives out the fear that we have now. So, um, another thing about me, uh, because I'm new probably to a lot of you, is I actually don't like movies that much, which is, like, not a super popular opinion, with the exception of Christopher Nolan films. I think Christopher Nolan films are incredible. Uh, I think he's a great story writer. If you're like, who's Christopher Nolan? He's a director. Uh, He is the director for The Dark Knight, Inception, The Prestige, um, just incredible films. And he's well known for for his incredible story writing. And so if you don't know Christopher Nolan, that's all right. If you've never seen any of these movies, that's all right. Uh, Because he's just known for his incredible story writing and all these kind of intricate details throughout his movies. But I love his movies so much that I can't just watch them one time. Like if if you're with me in like your favorite movies, you watch again because they're so good. And so I love watching Christopher Nolan films again. I always pick up on things I didn't pick up on the first time I watched it. Uh, but what's true is if I've seen the movie before, I know how the movie ends. And so all the twists and turns along the way, I'm not afraid because I know how, how, the outcome. I know the outcome of the movie the second time I watch it. And so I'm not afraid of all the twists and turns along the way, all the things that maybe should scare me or, or make me feel a type of way the first time. I'm not feeling that the second time. Church, we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus is going to come back in victory. Let's believe Jesus when he says, it is finished. The work has been done. Because when we remind ourselves of the end of the gospel narrative, this is what's true for the Christian. This is what's true, is fear not, victory has been won. Fear not, victory has been won. And when we believe in this, fear has no place. So let's just be a church that can confesses fear in connection group. As a church, we have the opportunity to fight and to believe together. We're invited into this joy of living fearlessly. Like there's a joy of, of not being afraid of gospel opposition. And when we do this, this is a sign to to the darkness, that their destruction is coming. It's a sign that the destruction is coming. And and Drew asked a few weeks ago when he taught, and and again this morning during announcements, how can we know the assurance of our salvation? And it, it is belief in Jesus. And here's what belief in Jesus does. It makes the powers of darkness powerless. And when the powers of darkness become powerless in your life, you can be assured of your salvation. Man, imagine a life of unity that leads to this life of fearlessness in the church. I feel like the next thing Paul should say is like, hey, the flourishing. You're going to see this beautiful flourishing. Let's keep reading. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So third implication of walking worthy of the gospel is that you would believe that suffering has been granted to you. So when we look at, at this text, there, there are two things that that have been granted to us like God's gracious gift to us two things one belief in him when i first read that i'm like i'm in for that part that gets me pumped i want to believe in jesus and he says suffering for his sake that one i'm like i'm not so sure like you getting uh, unity and, and fearlessness and suffering like it, it doesn't seem like it should go together, but Paul is saying that it is a gracious gift of God that he would allow you to suffer for his sake. And that's just the opposite of what I would expect and the opposite of what I desire. And we, we see suffering throughout the storyline of Scripture and throughout the story of Paul's life. Paul addresses suffering quite a bit, uh, but here... We see Paul referring to suffering as a result of gospel proclamation. This is what, this is what he says in verse 30, "Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have." And in saying that, he's referring to verse 12 of, the, or of Philippians one, excuse me, when he says, "I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel." He, he's referring to last week's message. That though he's imprisoned and, and everyone's saying all these terrible things about his name and about who Paul is, he's saying the gospel is being preached. Christ is being glorified. And then he's saying, even in my imprisonment, even in my suffering, my suffering is a result of gospel proclamation, but my suffering is also allowing me to proclaim the gospel to a different group of people in prison. And he's joyful. And he concludes, like his conclusion, how gracious of God to allow me to suffer. This is is the conclusion he wants our church to have. He's saying, would you have the perspective to say how gracious of God that he allows us to suffer? So is this how you view suffering? Because though he's referring to suffering as a result of gospel proclamation, I think we can apply it more broadly. Do we view suffering as a gift? Because I know I am. I'm so quick to view a comfortable life as a gift and view suffering as like a season I just need to fight through. Just a quick season I need to get to the other side of. And we definitely don't associate suffering with progress. Like suffering is not... The way to, to move forward for sure. But that's what Paul's saying. Through the gospel, we're given a different perspective on suffering. So what does that mean to walk worthy of the gospel? He's saying we're invited into, into this gift of changing our perspective on suffering. Paul, Paul's not saying that suffering isn't hard. Suffering is, is really hard. Paul's saying that the gospel allows us to have a different perspective on, the, on these hard times. Here's what we know, is that God does not withhold good from the people that He loves, which means despite suffering, God is ultimately for your good and for His glory. God is for your good and for His glory, and we can trust this because Christ has proven His faithfulness to us on the cross. And will again prove his faithfulness to us at his victorious return. So church, how would our personal attitude and gospel witness change if we believe God when he says, view suffering as a gracious gift? How would it change? Man, we, we not only would gain a new perspective on suffering, but we'd be invited into this life of joy we begin to take on this untouchable attitude that Paul had when he says, for I consider the, the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. We would suffer with thanksgiving, knowing that God is ultimately for a relationship with us. God wants to be have intimacy with us. We would suffer and not... And ask God how he wants to use it to be a witness to people around us. We would suffer knowing that God is ultimately working for his glory. And we can rejoice in that. That we would be joyful in the midst of all circumstances. Because we would again be reminded that our joy is found in the person of Christ. And he is unchanging. And that we would believe that Christ has invited us to have a different perspective on suffering. We believe that so this is getting um, real in my life, uh, so my sister, she uh, decided pretty recently that um, she feels like God is calling her to move to Tijuana, Mexico um, and be a part of a, a missionary training school and then be sent to an unreached uh, people group on the other side of the world, and um, she's now like. She's made this decision, and even now she's starting to experience this like, yeah, you, you shouldn't do that. Like, you should, you should live a life here. You have a good job. You should keep the job that you have. I, I don't think that's a good idea. You should wait until maybe you're married. You should wait until you have a few more things figured out. man. Her, but her church and, and, and those who are in Christ are saying, yes, we, we believe this is God's call on your life. So she's experiencing suffering now, but she's signing up for a life of suffering. Like, she, she knows this is what she's signing up for. I, I'm not going to be around for family events. I'm not going to be around for when I'm, you know, have my sister gets married or big celebrations happen as a family or holidays. And my life is probably going to be incredibly difficult. She knows that. She, she has like a very even head. She's not out in it for, the, for just the adventure. Why, so why is she doing it? Why does she say, yes, I, I want that life? Man, what a gift that life would be. Because she knows that, that the person of Christ will meet her in that place and that the glory of God will go to the ends of the earth. And she'll be a part of that. What a gift of God to allow her to be a part of that. She's taken on this attitude of Paul that would I see suffering as a gracious gift. Church, God is ultimately for your good and has invited us to have this different perspective on suffering. He he said that he's graciously allowed us to suffer for his sake. So would we proclaim the good news of the victorious kingdom? Knowing that that proclamation might result in suffering, but that same suffering is a means to further gospel proclamation and further intimacy with Christ. And ultimately, God is inviting us into the life of joy. So as we leave today, don't, not, I invite you to not only ask yourself, what does the gospel do for me? Which is gain this different perspective on, on life and a perspective of walking worthy of the gospel, but would you also ask yourself, what does the gospel ask of me? And this is to accept the invitation to walk worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Um, Thanks for the text this morning. Would we be a church that that is unified? Would we be a church that together in our unity is fearless towards the opposition that we face? And would we, as a church, by your grace, have the perspective that that suffering is a gracious gift from you? And that we can know you and that ultimately, Father, you'd give us the perspective and you'd give us the power to walk worthy of the gospel. Father, would, would your name be glorified? Would your name be honored in our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.